All right, everybody. This is Project Herpetoculture Podcast, episode 58. I'm your host, Roy Arthur Blodgett, joined as always by the handsome Philip Leeds of Arids Only. And yes. we have an awesome show today, an excellent guest that we're excited to chop it up with. And before we do, we're going to go through our housekeeping as always. And first, I want to give a shout out to Charlie, who edits our audio and a makes this a listenable experience for all of y'all. Um, we really appreciate your support. And legend, um, I also want to, yeah, of course, the legend. I also want to acknowledge uh, Dylan and the Animals at Home Network for hosting our show. We're really stoked to be here. Continues to be a great fit. And um, yeah, I want to talk about our sponsors real quick. So we've got Custom Reptile Habitats. They are makers of premium PVC reptile enclosures. And they also have a whole product line with Universal Rocks and all kinds of other excellent reptile-related products. And um, if you're in the market for any of that, looking to make a purchase, if you do so through the link in our bio or description, uh, we'll receive a small commission at no additional cost to you. And those little commissions are always uh, really appreciated and really helpful for us in uh, moving the podcast along and making upgrades. So we appreciate that. Um, We also have Cold-Blooded Caffeine, and they are roasters of quality coffees from all over the world. We have a private label with them. It's the Project Herpetoculture, and it's a light roast from Rwanda. It's really delicious if you like kind of lighter, more kind of floral coffees. But they have a whole bunch of different coffees for everyone, you know, everyone's different tastes. And if you make a purchase through them, you can use the code Project Herp for 10% off your order. And lastly, we have Fairy Chill Dragons. That is Heather Moy and Ron St. Pierre, of course, and they are absolutely shredding over in Florida, producing some of the finest bearded dragons in the world, um, alongside a bunch of other really amazing herpetofauna. So give them a follow, check them out. And if you're in the market for dragons, look no further than Fairy Tale. So um, one last thing is our Patreon. So um, if you're interested in supporting the show directly, we always welcome subscribers on Patreon, and that's at patreon.com slash projectherpetoculture. We really appreciate all of our subscribers. Um, it just really means a lot to have the support of the community. So thank you to everyone who's subscribed already. And with all of that out of the way, I'm going to pass it to my handsome co-host to introduce our guest. Oh, saw. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Roy. I appreciate you doing that. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm really pumped because um, I've been twisting Josh's arm to try to get her to do this for a little while now. And I'm really happy that I finally was able to, uh, convince him enough, maybe pay him enough to, to, <laughs> to, to, to get a little outside his comfort zone and come onto the show and talk with us. Um, our guest is Josh Marquis, uh, the, uh, well known for, uh, doing work as Marquis reptiles, right? That would be the mm-hmm. proper, proper name of your business. And, um, Josh is a great guy. We've been, we've been, uh, working together now on various projects for, Boy, it's got to be like around seven years now, right, Josh? Something yeah, like about that. This. Yeah, about seven years or so. Yeah. And um, and we have some really excellent conversations on the phone when we're just shooting the shit about reptiles and like why we do all this crap anyway. And so I thought I thought it'd be like a really great opportunity to 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 have you come on the show and, and talk with us. So thank you very much for taking the time. I really appreciate it, man. Of course, man. Anytime. Um, That's a yeah. Lot. <laughs> yeah, this, you're like let me be clear this is the <laughs> one time i'm never gonna do this this is a one-time gig y'all so, one yeah. time I'm so, <laughs> so I, I know i know we'll get into some some interesting topics around 
uh, some of the projects you're working on, specifically the Albino JRI. Mm-hmm. I know we'll get into get into hand, a handful of other things. We'll talk about a handful of other things, but um, I'd like to I'd like to kind of start with getting some some just some info on you and like your background. So can you tell every? Can you basically just outline for us kind of how you got into herpetoculture, like what your herpetoculture origin story looks like, and then we'll get into it. We'll do a few other things uh, before we start getting into the meat and potatoes of all this. Um, but is could we start there? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. yeah. Sweet. In my, let's see, late teens, I guess I kind of started uh, enjoying the concept of keeping and playing with reptile ownership. I think just like everybody does, right? You see one or you end up somewhere and you go, wow, that's cool. And kind of have that mm-hmm. and keep that. And that progressed into uh, working at a pet shop that was owned by a fellow by the name of Rich Eiley. Uh, mm-hmm. He was the founder of the Salmon Boa Project, if anybody remembers that. He also did quite a few other large scale uh, projects. He turned out to be a really good mentor or effectively just person to work for. Cause at the time this would have been, well, this is, I mean, this is almost 30 years ago, but he, he was really quite progressive as a pet shop owner. He owned arguably the best shop in the country. He, he, he was really good about quarantine and isolating and veterinary care for everything he brought into the store. It would sit wow. in the back. It would sit in the back of the shop for sometimes four, six, eight weeks, and he would set it up, acclimate it, hydrate it, clean and care for it, and then charge it a, a, a wildly disproportionate value for that. And he did really, really well. So if you had a $30 ornate in the rest of the pet trade at that time. It'd be a $300 ornate at Rich's shop, but it'd be set up properly in a really beautiful display. There was low volume of animals, real high number of quality. And it was, uh, it was a really neat place to work. And he was really very conscientious about things like, um, you know, uh, hygiene in an environment where historically the pet trade at that time and even today they're lacking in those sort of very simple things but so i learned a lot about that and that, that hobby just progressed from there into I, wor- I worked for him for several years moved to the southern arizona uh ended up working for uh, game and fish down here doing nuisance wildlife control for several years continued to grow oh. my hobby. wow so i did that full time and then i would continue to just grow my hobby and then ultimately the hobby reached a point where it was paying as much or more as my job and then ultimately from there i decided to make it a business Right. That's, that's kind of how it came to be. Wow. So actually, there's a, a couple of things I want to ask about there. Um, sure. So so the, the first, well, it's going to be two questions and I want to get them both out because otherwise I'm going to forget them. So the first is, um, considering the pet shop you work for, Rich's Pet Shop was so much mm-hmm. like was such a tier above. Super. Um, how, how did like, did that make him more competitive? Did it make him more like desirable? Did he have a better customer base? Because like. I, I feel like in some ways, those higher quality pet shops, the ones that seek to to take it to another level and really show how it can be done, at least in my experience, they don't seem to survive the same way. They seem like they either kind of their standards kind of drop a little bit or they don't seem to seem to survive quite as well because there are so many places where you, I was like, oh, you're, you're going to charge me $300 for this, Renate. I'm going to go over here for 30 and I can get one for 125 bucks over here because your average, your average consumer doesn't seem as interested in the in the, like the, like what they're getting. Right. And that's changing right. a little bit. I think we can talk about like how the ways that might be changing, but, you know, generally speaking, I think that's, I think that's partially true. So like, how did it, how did it look in terms of setting him apart? Well, I think uh, he doubled, I think he doubled it quite well because he was really well known throughout the herpetology community at the time, mm-hmm. super tight with all the 
folks you might know by name if you're old enough to know them or people that used to read books and that sort of thing. And he would go to trade shows and he was always in Daytona. He was always in California. And this was pre-internet or just at the urge of the beginning of it. So even acquisitioning animals was an entirely different experience. It was a very different way to buy an animal at all. And he marketed on the idea that uh, he wasn't selling necessarily to someone that already knew they wanted an ornate. He was selling to the soccer mom and dad that wanted a nice pet for their child who didn't have a grasp that a $30 animal was necessarily an option. We're just going to go to a store and we're going to wander in there on a Saturday and it's clean. It doesn't smell bad. It's well kept and manicured with respect to the staff and you market to that person. And that trade person is a very different person than someone that already has some acumen or idea of what they might want to buy and has the judgment of what they think that preconceived value is, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times people get caught up on the idea of what they think the value of an animal is. And you, it's almost easier to sell an animal that's well cared for for a higher value to someone that is not quite as familiar, isn't inundated with the idea of seeing all day on the internet or on the price list or wherever it might be that this is a this is this is what the animal's value is. And, and it, mm-hmm. being that they're living animals, they have a range of desirability, and a, you know it's worth often paying more for a nicer quality animal that's healthy and well and ready to be a part of your life and your family without having to go through all the stress of enduring, cleaning it up and hydrating it and having the, even just the, the acumen or the education on how to do that is a huge learning curve. Right. That's why so many people have animals that just, they bring home in a deli cup at a show and it's dead three weeks later. That animal could have lived 10 years, but you have to have the skill set to do that. You have to have the understanding that your $30 green snake might need that $300 vet visit. And that's got to be okay before you do that. What he did is he just took all of that and put all of that uh, behind them. So where all you have is here's a beautiful animal. Here's a perfect example. Go home with it and be happy. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel, like, I, I feel like that's something that's kind of changing, in it, which is cool. Like, I, I feel like there are more and more people who seem to be seeking that kind of thing. For sure. Like, I, I, like, I can't believe how many people... Like for sure, I still get the average person who's just like, hey, I just want to buy something. Who cares? Like, you know, they're like, I'm like, what kind of what species are you looking for? And they're like, oh, I don't matter, just a euro. I'm right. like, ah, nope, <laughs> like, that's not how it goes, right? Yeah. Uh, but also, um, I'm getting a lot of people who like they their lead off in the message is like, look, I don't want to deal with something that's wild caught and in right. crap, and I'm looking for a captive bred animal. And I'm like, great, let's talk about it. You know, it's like yeah. those are. Some of those people are, are some of the most easy to deal with, some of the most fun to deal with in some ways, right? For sure. Um, and Roy, you're on the other end of that spectrum probably. You, if I remember correctly, I'm not super familiar with the collection, but I think you keep more specialized animals that, generally speaking, if you have offspring, specifically need to go or are likely going to go to reptile guys as opposed to your average soccer mom on a Saturday, I would think. Yeah, definitely. I think that pretty much everything that I produce ends up going to somebody else who's pretty established in the hobby, you know, not necessarily like established in the sense that they have like a big, you know, presence or they're a big breed or anything like that, but that they're experienced, you know, and they're typically like looking for something specific and, you know, and um, because a lot of the stuff that I work with is pretty scarce, it tends to it tends to go quickly because of, you know, the demand for things that are short in supply, essentially. Yeah. But not pet trade animals effectively, right? You're not selling animals. Not really. No. Right. I yeah. mean, there are a couple species that I feel like have pet trade potential that I'm kind of working on trying to establish a little bit better. Like, yeah. 
like Texas alligator lizards, for example, I think they're a great, they're a great pet trade animal. You know, they're super easy to take care of. They're really personable. They're a good size, all that stuff. Um, and I also feel like the, the, the common monkey lizards, the polygris, the captive bred examples of those, I think actually have some pet trade potential for like a little bit, somebody who wants something a little bit more involved, you know, but they're like certainly not as involved as like a panther chameleon or something like that. I was going to just say, so not, yeah, almost yeah. Like effectively, but even, even easier. Exactly. Yeah. 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 In my opinion, at least, but yeah, it's, I think that it's, it's cool though to hear that like, yeah, that model was being pursued at that time. I mean, that feels like, you know, speaking to this pet store, you know, this pet shop sure. that you were speaking to, it feels like that was pretty progressive for the time. And Oh yeah, for sure. In fact, also, uh, made, I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh no. I was just going to say it, it's also just really cool because it's like, I feel like that model is just so much more defensible from like a broader perspective of sure. the trade, you know, and, and also is so much more likely to create um, a positive first experience for a mm-hmm. person, which I think is so important in terms of like the long-term building of herpetoculture, you know, is really about like, how can we make good first impressions with first time pet owners, you know, sure. because for most people, their first impression with the reptile is not a positive one if they're buying no. it from a big box store so. absolutely yeah no i agree and uh along that line of thought with that shop you know i, I had an opportunity you, you guys mentioned ron st pierre i met him there initially i yeah. met torres there i met bert there they were all friends wow. with rich and rich owned a private the other thing that he did additionally to having the retail trade is he owned a building on his property so all the all the blood boas or all the salmon boas all the emerald tree boas everything rich produced and kept leopard geckos whatever that that might have been were all at that that separate isolated facility from the shop entirely and i would say that was also quite progressive for the time there wasn't a lot of people yeah. that went to the scale to have a building set and isolated and specifically dedicated to that and that really helped him be able to again it was all just control it was just able to isolate and really dialed in and make certain animals available to somebody that they would be happy with and that premium but it's interesting because they are really divergent things like what you keep wouldn't apply necessarily to this uh, sort of construct of what a pet shop would be because he wanted animals that people could go home with and very easily simply begin the process of having a reptile without it being like you said without it being a failure yeah and and it's tricky stuff because it's a you know, as, as keepers and breeders and producers of wildlife, you have to think, you know, it's really neat to work with rare or common things or things that are difficult because it's a challenge, but the trade-off becomes, then you have to be responsible and accountable for the idea that those animals are going to then need new homes when you produce them. And that's a very interesting place to be, you know, uh, like I think, Absolutely. I think Phil, you and I had talked about that with your Egyptians. You had had some previous, you know, success with them. You really enjoyed them. You loved them and had the acumen and ability to keep them without problem. But yeah. the reality is, when you think about thirty of those things heading out yeah. into the public every year, how many people are really actually able to keep them and care for them for the life of that twenty or thirty year giant? So it's a yeah, big commitment. Yeah. It really and, is, dude. And it, it's it's like you even even like an ornate, right? Which doesn't get it anywhere near as big as an Egyptian when you. When you put like a fully grown adult male ornate uromastics in a four by two, it's not, it doesn't seem right. Yeah. They're just too big. They're just too big. It's not, and not even too, that's not even the right word. They're not too big. The four by two is not adequate for an animal like that. Right. It's like it. And, and, you know, I keep, I keep all my adults in, 
something that either resembles a six foot diameter pen mm-hmm. or I have a handful of pens that are, are actually like a four feet by three or four by four, four by five, three by five, you know, something. And they're open top and they've got like, and they're, they're, they're housed alone and they've got all this space. And I can't imagine, I cannot imagine putting them in something smaller. Like I just, I can't, it's, it feels weird. You know, the Egyptians were just another instantiation of that where it's like, man, I, you know, I have eight and a half by five foot pens and that's just Not barely big enough. Barely big enough, you know. It didn't even seem yeah. right, you know. And 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 you don't, you know. You, I think it's. I think there's an issue in in like concept, you know. Because if I tell you, hey, pork chop, my male Egyptian was like 29 inches long, 28, 29 inches long, and like, you know, 10 pounds. Yeah, you know, people are like, yeah. whatever, whatever, dude. And I'm like, you know, and they, all they look at is the length, and they're like, oh, 29 right. inches isn't even close to six feet. So you put them in a six foot enclosure, but like, oh, dude. Yeah. His his tail is thicker, bigger around than my wrist. Yeah, he's a huge he's a huge animal, and and when you when you've got him in hand and you look at him moving through a cage like that, it's it just it just didn't feel right. It's like no, so I sent him to a place where he's got a fifteen foot pen. Yeah, it's like it's much better, much much. It is a weird it is a weird construct with what we do because as we continue along in the process of keeping animals, we want to maybe diverge into new stuff or challenging stuff or stuff we haven't, you know, had the opportunity to work with before that lands and we think we're confident to keep. But the reality is, is even if all of that is true, you know, at the end of the day, it may not mean it has a, a great opportunity to be uh, an option for other people, even if they're captive bred, you know, Lanthanotus are a really good example of that. I mean, they're a neat animal. They're incredible. But the reality is, is how many people are going to keep an entirely aquatic animal that's this big that hides under, you know, dirt all day long and pay $5,000 for it. Yeah. That is a very small club of people. It's, I mean, we all want to do it because we get excited yeah. and nerd out over it. But the reality is, is once you, those hundred nerds all have them, now what? You know, now what are we going to do with the next right. thousand? Because those hundred are going to be competent to keep them well and breed them. Now we have a thousand yeah. of them. Why are we doing that? You know, at what point is it's very, it's, that's why I've got in my own collection. I mean, yes, I raise a lot of ball pythons and I have for the last 20 years. And I think they're a great pet animal for the trade and the hobby in general. I think it's hard pressed to find a better pet snake from the word go in that regard. Uh, additionally, you know, even in what I'm working with, with respect to lizards, I'm trying to really pay attention to when I, when there's 500 of these a year produced or 5,000 of these, mm-hmm. you know, when you look at other large commercial examples that are successful, bearded dragons, leopard geckos, you know, the why of that, it has a lot to do with just their size, ease of maintenance and low entry point buy-in for, you know, knowledge for a hobbyist. And that's, that's great. That's, that's what you want in an animal. And that's really, you want, you want the soccer mom on a Saturday when the kid's bored of it 10 years later to still go to the pet shop every week and pick up the crickets to feed it and care for it, not have it be a, you know, a water monitor that's six feet long and is going to make a giant mess yeah. and need room to live in. And, and now we do that a lot with a lot of our stuff. I think, I mean, it, it's not, it's not with any malice. I just think it comes to pass that it's exciting and it's cool. And then you start to look at the long-term ability to offer that to others. And that, that, club to share with is sometimes small because of the, just the nature of the animals. It's just not easy. Yeah. You know? Yeah, totally. I mean, this is something I think about a lot with the Spilotes that I, that I'm keeping and producing now. Sure. You know, the last two years I've kept, kept the sulfurgus ah. and, and or I've been keeping them for a long time, but the last two years I've bred them and um, you know, it's like 
I'm very selective about where they can even go because they're I, like, they're, like you said, they're just not, it's not a good fit for just anybody right. to have a, a colubrid that's going to get 10 feet long, yeah. you know, pretty yeah. reliably is going to get 10 feet long, you know, and very and have a lot of specialized care needs and specialized exactly. requirements. I mean, there's a lot that yeah. you buy in to enjoy that animal. The investment to and energy to enjoy it is big. It's high. Yeah. It's high. And the reward is also high. Like I think that they're amazing animals to keep for the right person. Right. But it's, it's the, yeah, like you say, it's not, it's not a standard investment kind of animal at all. Not even close. Which also, I mean, this that can be probably too, you know, the ultimately definitely just reach the Zenith of how many people can want to do that in a way that you feel comfortable finding them a home. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, it is. It is something stuff I think about a lot, you know, in terms of just like longevity, you know, in herpetoculture and keeping and breeding and mm-hmm. kinds of things I want to be thinking about. But I mean, earlier you had mentioned just that, you know, you you were doing this as a hobby and then it got to the point where you were basically making as much doing this as like your job and you made right. this transition. So I'm curious about like how how did that happen? You know, that's that's not a standard story for most reptile keepers. I feel like most people who are even trying to be breeders, you know, find themselves constantly behind the eight ball, constantly like, you know, chasing the dollar, and it's a stressful experience for a lot of people to do that. So I'm curious about that, and 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 also kind of as a as an addendum to that, like how much was that tied in with this example that you had, this model that you had from the shop and from this this facility, sure. you know, how much of that informs your progression in that? I caught the second wave of the ball python craze effectively. Mm-hmm. So I started working with animals. I had bred ball pythons just to learn how to breed ball pythons, just normal ball pythons before I purchased anything in the way that, you know, the different codom or recessive mutations. And uh, I bought in early. I got into the idea of enjoying that aspect. I mean, my First pastel ball python, it was $7,500 that I bought. Wow. <laughs> and that was only after I had spent years breeding normals and thought I could yeah. do it. And, but, but that was yeah. the time that was back. I mean, you know, conceptually, there were a handful of recessives. You had pies, you had albinos that were individually, you know, clowns had come in. Um, and I had been working with boas a bit because I worked with Rich. At the, and I had been working with Rich, so I had um, I had bred emerald tree boas successfully for many years, and I really enjoyed emerald tree boas. I had clouded boas. I had amarelli. I had all these different sorts of things, but they were big, but they were also expensive and desirable. And at the time, the craze was big. People were wanting larger stuff. The ball python game really hadn't picked up steam yet. In fact, some of the mutations would sit on tables because they were either thought to be too expensive or just no one's going to want those. So the value, the value wasn't in them yet. And then four or five years later, people stood in line, you know, 60 to buy the same animals they ignored several seasons earlier because they then learned to get excited about it over time. Uh, and that's basically what happened with me is I just happened to have the ball python bug early and I bought that pastel. And that pastel was successful. And by the time I got that pastel to be successful, they were I think there were $3,500. And so if you have, you know, 20 of those all of a sudden, then you start applying that money. And again, it was just yeah. hobby money. So it just kept getting applied. Like the first, I think the first banana ball was a $20,000 plus purchase that I bought. And it was a female. So I was staring at, you know, $20,000 sitting in a tub for three years or more before it'd be reproductive. And it just, it just, I just kept wow. parlaying, I just kept parlaying the money 
that was ever right. made touch from the hobby back into the hobby. So it never was a rent thing. It was never, I have to pay my bills with it. I never had to do any of that. I just had to grow the collection. And because I was fastidious about doing that, when the time came that it became a living, it was pretty easy because I had already built a collection that would afford the idea of it being a job. And I mean, not a right. worldwide, you know, super fancy hundreds of thousands of dollars a year job, but a job that was proportionate to what I was making working for Game and Fish. So it, at that point, yeah. you know, after it was all said and did, after all the expenses were paid for the year, I was making the same sort of comparable money. So then at that point, it became a matter of talking to my partner, you know, discussing the idea that I may want to grow this a little more. And, you know, if I have a bad year, are you willing to cover my butt? Or, you know, if I have a great year, I'll cover the next three or, and then just kind of taking that risk. And that applied to really, that applies to arguably most of what I do with keeping reptiles is there is a substantial risk in something new or uh, valuable. Again, I go back to that and, you just have to make the decision for yourself if you're willing to gamble that. That's what it comes down to in that moment. And the larger you're willing to gamble, when there are successes, the more you reward because of it. You know, and I think, I mean, Phil's a perfect example of that. I would argue when I told Phil four or five years ago what sort of money I thought was going to be involved in these albino lavender projects, he thought I was out of my mind. And, you know, uh, five years later, he's in my kitchen buying one. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so there is that to be guilty, said. bro. Guilty. And, and betraying the whole Euromastics community in the process. Totally, yeah, just yeah. absolute betrayal. Yeah, it, it, which is just so so ridiculous. The whole concept of it is just so silly. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. Well, I mean, okay, so so a couple of things I want to say. Sure. First is uh I think that something I try to I try to live by is I'm not afraid of changing my mind. Mm-hmm. Like it's like I change my mind all the time about all kinds of shit, you know. Like it's pretty rare. It's like I mean, every now and again, I even go back and forth. Like, is murder really that bad? I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, but like, I change my mind a lot, and I'm, and I'm always trying, like, testing. You know, like for example, solo housing here with the euros. I say that it's like a, something I just stand by, but I like Brendan, my employee. He's here. He'll he'll tell you I try all the time to not do it. Right. We've got animals right now here that we're trying to cohabitate and see if we can get it to work somehow. And it doesn't mean that I don't think euros are best house solo anymore. It just means I'm like testing this. Right. Sure. It's the same thing with, um, with my perceptions on certain aspects of what I do in the trade. You know, like when we first started this podcast, I had one, I had, a, I had this particular set of ideas and beliefs about the way herpetoculture ought to work. Mm-hmm. And now that we're just over a year deep, I have a different idea of the way I think herpetoculture ought to work. And we have some different ideas about how that might look going forward and what that might be. But one of the ways that I've changed my mind, so, you know, there's been some where I've like taken a much more naturalistic slant to what I do, even though I've kind of publicly said that I don't believe in naturalism in the first place and all this weird stuff. And, you know, I've kind of taken more of like an ethical slant to kind of what I'm doing here and like setting an example in terms of a way that I think we should do things ethically moving forward and, and how how we might be able to like think about this in, from a broader broader scope and a broader perspective and one that's a little more nerdy and one that's a little less um, uh, like a little bit less uh, Pokemon-ish and, and medical, you know what I mean? But sure. at the same time, one of the other ways I've changed my mind is the idea that there's something wrong with morphs or that there's something wrong with 
uh, with things like hybrids or anything like that. Now, granted, I'm not over. I'm not interested in making any hybrids really with my Euromastics. It's not sure. not something I'm I'm intrigued intrigued to follow, or you know, maybe outside of a natural curiosity about whether or not they even can, right? Because some of them surely can, and some of them probably can't. But um, but you're not peeing in somebody's Cheerios if they choose to do it. Yeah, yeah, of course, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. I'm not <laughs> yeah. not urinating in their breakfast cereal if they want. To. Yeah, that's a hilarious way to put it. But like, but anyway, but the point of that is to say that like this is like a super hot topic, right? People people have a hard beef with not just it's not just morphs within Euromastics. People just don't like morphs in the first place, right? Like, there. Let me rephrase that. There's a huge percentage of people that love great <laughs> enthusiasm around uh, taking an animal and, and, and saying, all right, it is what it is, and I can do things with this, right? Yeah. And then there's a group of people who say, this is inherently bad, it's a pyramid scheme, and it's garbage, and you shouldn't do it in the first place, right? right? And this is one of the things that you and I talk about all the time, which is, I don't buy that particular argument. I don't think it's accurate. I don't think it, it I don't think it's clear-minded, and I don't think it under, um, I don't think it offers a pragmatic and holistic view on the trade. And, and some of the, some of the people who I've heard most closely reach uh, what I think is like a solid perspective in, at least with, in some regard is like Justin Julander. And he and I have talked about this, you know, I, I've heard him talk about it on his show and, and, and he and I, like, I love Justin, right. He's been on here. I've been on uh, reptile fight club. I love Justin to death. Yeah. And I, and I don't necessarily I don't necessarily get on board with his particular perspective of the morph market. However, I appreciate his acknowledgement that herpetoculture would not be where it is today without the morph market, right? right. Like the morph market facilitated, uh, it, it, frankly, the majority of our ability to do this in the first place. Oh, you? yeah. In fact, in fact, the very first princeps I ever exported, the very first Thomas I ever exported, the very first defensor that I ever exported, those three animals, when I brought them in, were wildly more expensive than they are today. I had never even actually seen a living example of them. And the only reason that I had the ability to do that is because I had had spent years raising ball pythons of value enough to where I could go, okay, I guess I can turn around now and go get a $20,000 box of lizards out of Europe for fun. Yeah, you know, so <laughs> and, and bring those home and see if that would work, you know, and see how that would, yeah, there's a lot to be said for that sort of stuff. But the idea that morph as a concept is a negative thing is kind of silly. Uh, there are, throughout the history of our trade in the last 50 years, there's countless examples of animals that are every bit as healthy and happy and live fully functional lives that we've all seen come and go that have different color pattern flavor because of the idea of people pursuing that. And I don't know why, I don't know why there's still, uh, I mean, I appreciate that. I understand there are some examples of mutations that are bad. You know, they, uh, you know, they wobble or they spin or they, you know, a lot of these lizards can be problematic. You know, they're T negative albinos. So they've got problems. They're blind. I don't think you should be selling animals that you know are going to be blind. That seems like a poor decision for a hobby. But if you have an animal that's more attractive inherently to a larger community of people, just because it has a recessive or a codominant gene that doesn't do anything negative to attribute the animal's ability to live function and be happy for a lifetime. I don't get what the big deal is at all in that. I just don't get it. Right. And if it spurs the hobby interest, which, I mean, it's 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 hard not to notice if you've been around long enough that value equates to um, 
quality of care, value equates to development and design of things that are advantageous to all of us. I mean, goodness, if you take a $200 animal and people, well, you know, the Saharans are a perfect example. They are ignored. They're exported in huge numbers. I would argue probably 90% of them are dead within 60 days of being exported. They're inherently disposable and cheap because they're an $80 animal currently. Now, if I hand you that same animal and go, this animal is $20,000, you're going to have to mortgage against your house to take it home. They're going to innately pay more attention to it. They're going to get better care and better treatment just by the default of the fact that it has this preconceived and really tangible value. And that's, whether that's good or bad, whether that's good or bad or what that actually means, I I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. But the bottom line is, is, that that generated income has done so much for this hobby. I mean, ball pythons being a great example of that. If you look at how much just hard equipment, supplies, utility, things that we have, because it became a billion dollar industry, none of that would have happened had that billion dollar industry not been there. Same thing with, you know, like we're talking about with the lizards and stuff. I mean, the way we keep lizards and how we keep lizards in the last 30 years has grown exponentially because of the hobby captive producing them. When they were all coming out of the bush and they were all $300 or less, we kept tree monitors in 40-gallon glass aquariums. We kept, I mean, we had over and over and over again, you can see examples where as the value, the actual tangible cash value of something increases, so does the level of care and so does the access to equipment and supplies to be able to do that. So I think in any instance where you can make things better because more money is infused in it, again, another example of why I don't know why a morph would be bad in that respect. Yeah. Well, and, and man, yeah, there's, all there's, said. there's so much... There's so much richness here to, to, to kind of unpack and, and like talk about, because I, you know, obviously when it's like a, when it's like a legitimate detriment to the animal's health and well-being, as you said, like, we can have a totally separate conversation. Absolutely. You're right. And, and yeah. we're not talking about that, but like there, there's two things that come to mind for me here too. One is like, it seems like there's this desire when someone says like, you know, you know, like I've, I've heard people say things that sound a little bit like, you know, why isn't the wild type ornate enough? Sure. And that's not, that's not, it, it's not about enough, right? Like, it, like I don't have to like something for the same reasons that you do, Correct. you know, like yeah. you, we can all have different reasons for enjoying something and enjoying participating yeah. with something. Right. And then further, I take issue with the premise in the first place. What is a wild type? What does that mean? Yeah. Like tell you, tell me what wild type means, especially when we have something that is occurring in the wild, yeah. I, you know, which would yeah. like, which would lead me to like maybe we could also have you give a little bit of a background uh, to the uh, the the JRI the albino sure. JRI like a little bit about how it how it came to be and where where it came from and a little bit about the the background there because I think but and and also I want to make sure we uh, Roy if you had something to oh, yeah, say sure. before we get into that no, I that's fine be sure no no keep going it's fine yeah okay, okay cool. just uh, yeah I, I the animal was offered to me through a photograph uh, a friend knew that I was interested in. The idea of growing my lizard collection just in general. I had really good success raising Thomasi. I had good success raising Defensor. I was able to raise Princeps before I sent them to you. And so I didn't get the chance to produce them. But uh, and I was still enjoying the trade idea of growing a lizard or growing lizards because uh, they were fun and they were different than a ball python. And I would be a fellow, perhaps a lot of people would think to ask, hey, would you want this really goofy one? But it comes at a premium. And that's basically what happens. I got a photograph and I had somebody say, this is available. It's on the other side of the world. You know, basically came out of the wild. It was hatched out of the dirt. And 
if you would like to buy it, you're welcome to. I don't know what, you know, we thought it was maybe a T negative albino. I thought maybe it was a hypo thought maybe I, it was a T positive albino. I didn't really know what it was. I didn't know if it would be, a, you know, uh, genetic. I didn't know what gender it was. I didn't know, didn't know anything. Didn't I just knew it was different. And based on that, I, again, we've talked about risk earlier and value and cost. And I kind of thought about it and had it been $5 more, I probably wouldn't have bought it because I couldn't have afforded to buy it, <laughs> but it was mm-hmm. right at the very edge of my not being bankrupt to buy it. And so I did, and it showed up and, you know, I, I raised it for a year or so. And I had never, for what's worth, I've never kept a Saharan in my life before this animal. So this was the first one that had ever shown up in my collection. And, uh, I kept it a year or so and felt more comfortable that it wasn't going to die and has great eyesight. I mean, it looked great and it's beautiful and getting more and more attractive every, every shed. And I'm getting more and more excited about it. And then I learned, you know, how, how to breed them and cycle them a little more and did some of that and had success producing a clutch of hets. And then from that point, once the hets were old enough, I was able to breed them to one another and breed them back to the founding animal. And it proved to be recessive. And they have been super strong, healthy, happy, and awesome. They're just really cool. I mean, at least I think. I don't feel you were here a couple of weeks ago and you got the opportunity to see them firsthand. I mean, that was pretty neat for me because I live in a bubble. I, I work in a building by myself and this project, I'm the only one in the world that has them. So it's kind of a, and to date, I haven't taken them to a trade show. I haven't taken them to an environment where people have the opportunity to see them and comment on them beyond the photographs I take. So it was kind of fun to have you here because it was neat to, to show them to someone that understood and might have appreciated what they were. Yeah. And, it, and I mean, admittedly, it was pretty weird. It was like seeing them was pretty wild. You yeah. Know? Like, I, I mean, it, you know, again, you know, they people always say things like, oh, a picture doesn't do it justice. But picture didn't really do them any justice, you know. And, it, and it's, it's a pretty strange thing, you know, because I remember... The other thing I should say too is I remember seeing the photo myself of the original mm-hmm. one yeah. child, and she it wasn't a tiny baby, like it wasn't a little minuscule. No, no, it, yeah, no. It was like it was like a solid, like a solid juvenile, maybe sub adult, you know, yeah. like even that range. So yeah. it wasn't like a tiny little baby, and um, yeah, it's pretty wild. It's, it's pretty strange, uh, uh, you know. And so the, you know that brings me back to what I was saying before, like what what do you mean wild type? You know, sure. I. I I asked uh, chat GPT the other day, I said, like, what, what does wild type mean? You know? And it basically gave me the answer that I, I kind of suspected, which was like, Oh, it's like the sort of like the typical look of a wild population. And it's like, well, but that's like such an amorphous concept in the first place. Right. Like, you know, like the, the idea that, uh, you know, I, I think, I think a lot of people would say something like, well, in, in my mind, a wild type animal looks like the kind of thing that if, Where'd you go? Nope. We lost Phil. He I thought that away. was me for a second freezing, but I think nope. it was Phil freezing. Was oh, Phil. no. All right, <laughs> guys. Oh, there he there is. There he is. Oh, he's back. You're back. Sorry about that. My internet's been really unstable here the last few times I've tried to do this from the shop. So sorry about that. It was my no bad. Worries. Yeah. No, it's um, fine. Any, any, anyway, I was just sort of, I was just sort of going on and on again about like the wild type thing and how I asked chat GPT, like what wild type means. And, um, you know, like, I, I, I just don't feel like it, you know, I understand what people mean when they say wild type and they mean they're, they're thinking something that's 
non-anomalous, right? Sure. Something that is just sort of typical that if every millennia you followed any random population of what we would define as a species in the first place around the wild and you plucked a random one out of there, you'd be pretty indistinguishable from the ones the last few millennia, right? Yeah. That's I understand that's what people are getting at, but I, I, I guess my issue is like placing like a value on that, like some sort of weird inherent value has like, it's like this weird pure like this concept of purity or like you know un un unmolested genetics or something like that is very bizarre to me it's such a bizarre well ironically ironically it's almost the inverse argument that they're making about how much they don't like the fact that there are different color and patterns available they're almost as Mm -hmm. angry about the idea right there's there's this concept that this normal type has a greater value to me than your not normal type. Well, that's cool. We all agree to have different things we like and enjoy. I don't know why that can't just be enough, right? If that's, if you're really happy with that, that's awesome. Although, and I'm really happy with these and that's awesome. Let's all just get along and enjoy keeping stuff. They're the same animal. They just have a different paint job. They got a different flavor. Like how is that so hard? You know, it's interesting. Yeah, it is. But again, for me, it goes back to, you know, uh, just, I, I spend a lot of time because this is how I make my living thinking about the value of things or the cost of all sure. things. And truly, I just don't see any reason why if you have an animal that is happy, healthy, and, you know, does everything it should do functionally and just happens to come in a different flavor and people wish to pay a premium to have that. I don't know why that's a problem. I just don't understand. I, I will never understand again. Cause every time you add money to anything involving, you know, the care and keeping of animals, you just, they benefit. They just always benefit. You know, you, the worst stories I've ever heard in my life about people having, you know, sad ends to their animals is that they gave an animal away for free. If that animal were $20,000, I assure you that same animal gets a totally different level of care in that moment. And I don't know what that says about us keeping things. I don't know. I'm not making a judgment call about that. I'm just laying what I've noticed in the last 25 years of this of my life being a truth. You know, there's a given that the constant being that the more money is influxed into any project or into that community in general, the better the level of standard of care and equipment and just overall betterment of the animal being kept seems to get. Yeah. And that's good. I don't know why that's bad. You know, I mean, leopard geckos are a perfect example of that, right? There was an $18 leopard gecko out of the wild. And then we take that over the course of the last 30 or 40 years, it's changed the world. I mean, goodness gracious, you know, with respect to how to, to keepers. I mean, has is, is anyone in this chat not had a leopard gecko at some point in their life? <laughs> I mean, you know, like, right? I mean, it's it's almost a, you know, it's like your first car. It's like it's like, you know, when you're 16, here's my first reptile. It's a leopard gecko or it's a bearded dragon. And those two examples, I mean, the the, the money that they generate, the variability in color and pattern that keeps people interested and entertained. Those two alone are a really good example of how as money comes in, things get better. And like we talked about, there are examples where it can be a negative attribute too, but it's only because people are producing things that they shouldn't be chasing. If you have some ethic behind it, if you look at it and go, I don't want to sell a blind animal. I don't want to sell an animal where a leg falls off or whatever it might be, you know, that's bad about it in that moment. then that won't happen. And when it does, people should root that out and, shit all over it and make it really difficult for people to keep selling those sort of animals. You know, I, I think that lemon frost, yeah. was that you feel I was talking about that? Mm-hmm. That was a problematic thing. Oh yeah. 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 It was tied. Um, 
now, admittedly, I'm not as intimately involved in that world, but me neither. Yeah, the my, my understanding is that the lemon frost gene is is tied to a um, or has a bundle of genes that just generates tumors. The tumor generating tumors. Yeah, yeah tumor generating yeah. Uh, mutation. Right. So yeah. I, I don't I don't know what that looks like on a physiological level. No, no. You know, or anything like that. But yeah, it, that was the the understanding that I had going into that or learning about that rather was that, well, they all get tumors and it's, a, sure. real, it's a real drag and there's a huge, that's a huge yeah. ethical one, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and I guess, yeah. but we do that in other strains too, you know, with dogs. I mean, we, we, we look at our dogs that we breed or that people breed and, you know, that we've developed over the last millennia and there are traits that are bad that are to a degree, they're not bred anymore because it's negative to have, it affects the quality of life. And then there are traits that don't affect the quality of life at all. And we happen to like and enjoy it. It's why some dogs are bigger. Some dogs are smaller. They're all dogs. They're just very different variations on the theme of the dog. And I think herpetology is just at the very beginning of that. You know, I think we're in a really early, I mean, you know, like, you know, you can think about fish, you can think about chickens, you can think about other things that we've kept for millennia. And there's a huge variability in color, pattern, flavor, and things that we want out of those animals for ourselves. And they're nothing like the wild type examples that you right. would have started with originally. And this is just the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's very much the same thing. Right. Right. And, you know, I've heard, I've heard people make the argument about, you know, like dogs, for example, it's like, well, yeah, but dogs are the perfect example because there's so many of them that have all these problems. And it's like, yeah, well, you know, like, then then somebody would say, well, oh, you know, dogs were bred for a work purpose, right? So they served like what we would say, we would otherwise call real world utility, right? Um, At which point I would argue, what does that mean? And how is, how, like, there's no, in my mind, there's no difference between like, you're breeding a dog because you wanted to fight a bull or fight other dogs or, you know, like hunt badgers or hunt foxes or whatever. Like, there's no more ethical than saying like, I like one, the one that has weird paint. Right. You know, it's like yeah. it's the same, you know, it's the same kind of concept. And especially now in a world in which we're breeding and maintaining certain various breeds of dogs out of tradition. Sure. Just for tradition. Right. right. And and so now there's a there's a whole ethical conversation there that says, well, wait a minute. You know, it doesn't make any sense anymore to be making boxers that can't give birth on their own. Right. right. That doesn't yeah. make any sense at all. Right. Yeah. At the same time, you're never going to look at a boxer and be like, look at this abomination well i mean i might just because i think it's funny to call (laughs) you know what i mean um and and again i don't i don't like i think this is a this is such a great allegory because you know roy has a wolf dog right Ah. like and she's and dalva's amazing she's such a beautiful animal and it's like at the same time i have a golden retriever it's nothing like a dog right very different animals but we both coexist and we have you know we have uh uh we both have similar ideals and we have similar relationships with our dogs and we have similar reasons behind having those dogs and we and we you know um i think i think some of it is really like just newness mm-hmm. people are, are yeah. uncomfortable with change and they're uncomfortable with new absolutely you know you, you hear people say things like well i want in in 150 years i want people to be able to buy a wild type J rides. Like you can still do it. I'm sure you're going to have that capacity. You know, you're still going to have that. (laughs) Absolutely. I have no doubt in my mind. Like, you know, I always say it like this, like we can have our cake and eat it too. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And and there's no reason, there's no reason we can't have both. And, um, 
And I just, I really, it's something that I've kind of been, you know, been harping on too, because there's this other aspect of it. It's like, well, okay. Another example, martial arts, right? We talk about, you know, like when you talk about, um, like I've heard people say things like, oh, the water is most pure, closest to its source or whatever, which is nonsensical just on a physical and chemical level. Right. But, um, but, uh, you know, you get, you, you hear people say things, you know, where like, well, look, modern jujitsu just doesn't resemble self-defense in any way, shape or form. And as long as I'm alive, I'm going to be continuing that tradition of jujitsu that only matters for self-defense. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Like I'm all here for self. I mean, that's how I got started. Right. Like I'm, I've got no problem. with self. obviously (laughs) not even not a problem. Like I literally make part of my living off of self-defense jujitsu. Right. right? So it's like, Mm -hmm. we should have that, but what happens when you die? Like, you know, you're going to like you, as soon as you're not here anymore, you've got no control over the trajectory of this project that you're working on. And you, I think in some ways being a participant in, uh, what is otherwise a collective art project, right. With varying degrees of ethical responsibility attached to it. Absolutely. You, you, you 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 are you are signing up for something that may look very very different from what you think it should look like in mm-hmm. 500 years and that's you don't have a lens through which to understand things in 500 years so you may not have a great way of making this you know understandable and when i say it's a collective art project that has varying degrees of ethic attached to it it's again it's the same thing as jujitsu if I was selling people jujitsu that wasn't practical, that couldn't be used in a situation where they needed to defend themselves, I would have an ethical responsibility to, to, to pay for it at that point. Be like, well, now sure. I've been a huckster. I've been lying to people, which is why we have pages like McDojo on, on Instagram, which is amazing. It's like the best page of all time. But see all these people trying to use chi and just get fucking bones. Oh, great. It's amazing. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I, I think, uh, I also think, and, and I mean, again, all of this is, is, is said through the lens. Like our last show was with a great guy who I, I just, I love talking to him is Nathan Carlos Rupley. Great mm-hmm. human, super sweetheart of a guy. I love the way he communicates. I love the way he talks about all this stuff, but he and I see this exact topic very, very differently. And that's mm-hmm. totally fine. You know, yeah. like, I, I don't, I want there to be people in the world who are repulsed by an albino lizard, right? Like I I want those people here too, because that's a valuable part of the community. Right. And, 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 uh, but I also think that like any, I think as soon as we're talking about the work that we do, this, this practice, this weird discipline that is herpetoculture, we have to be willing to cognitively separate it from what it, from what it is definitely not. And it is definitely not uh, like stewarding of wild, like we're, we, we're not doing anything like that. We've got lizards in our homes, in boxes. Cause we like them. Cause we like them. Like they're not going back into the wild, you know, in rare circumstances, maybe right. Maybe. Like, and fine. I'm here to talk about that too, which is a sure. separate project still, still under the umbrella of herpetoculture, but it's not the same thing. You know, we're not, we're doing something different altogether. And, and the, like, I'm under no illusion that if we kept them as naturalistically as possible in captivity, that in 500 years, we have something that resembles the wild animal. There's no way. 
you've got something entirely different altogether on, on, on a chemical level, on a bacterial level. Like you've got something totally different now, you know, for sure. Uh, I mean, you know, but, but again, maybe I'm getting a little bit in the weeds here because, you know, you can make the argument that as soon as you introduce a, like a, like a non-endemic species into like an invasive species onto an Island somewhere, you've got a different animal, right? You've got some, you know, like the Fiji iguanas when they're dealing with cats is not the same Fiji iguana that never had to deal with a cat in the, you know, previously, right. So we got a different animal altogether now at that point, but that, so maybe I'm splitting hairs just a tad, but like, for sure. I don't know. I, I like, I find this topic profoundly interesting. Like it's so intriguing to me. And I, and I, part of why I like to talk about it so much is because I, I really, it's like, it's really important for me to, to be, to be um, like aligning my behavior and my life and my work to the way that I think in some way, mm. you know, like to, to, to like the way I view the world. And, <laughs> and, I, and I couldn't, like, I just can't get, I can't, I can't find, I can't in, like cognitively inhabit an argument that says, oh, this is all ra- wrong. It's a pyramid scheme. Like you've got it all wrong and you're doing it detriment. Like, I just can't, like, I can't. And, and perhaps that's a failing on my part. I'm open to that possibility, but like sure. for, for the, for the most part, I haven't had anybody present me with a cogent argument that says, here's why this is absolutely bad and you shouldn't do it. I, I right. can't find it. I can't find that, that argument. I don't know. I mean, and you don't mean just yeah. in this example with these, no, no, yeah, just no, in I'm, lavenders, but just the idea of mutations as a whole yes. as a construct. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I will say it's, you know, uh, if I might just quickly interject in this, yeah. your thoughts and feelings and my thoughts and feelings as people that raise animals to feed our family are objectively going to be different than the thoughts and feelings of your casual hobbyist that has a pair of Euromastics in their homes as pets. Just the bottom line of how you and I have to live and think our lives and what we do is going to be different than your casual hobbyists and the way they keep and think about things. Because they might think about this for 20 minutes and go watch a movie. You think about it, you have 200 hours or more, 2000 hours or more thought of it because you're sitting in a room where for eight hours a day, your job is doing nothing but cleaning and caring for those animals. So right. even just those yeah. sort of tangents are kind of interesting to think about because you spin the wheel thinking about it probably far more than the casual person that walks by a table and sees one on a table and goes, well, wow, that's really neat. And then goes home, you know, yeah. and I, yeah. there's something, and it goes back to the greater thing of even like, you know, value talking about that, you know, I get a lot of emails or correspondence and people are sometimes surprised at what this project costs. Well, when you take into account what I spent to buy it and raise it for six years, I had to buy another property to put a building large enough on it to grow it large enough to this year, six and some change years in, I'll have a whopping 30 animals in the entire world available for sale. There's a there's a lot of time and money in, involved in that process. And I'm not, you know, I'd be the first to say at that kind of price point, I'm not selling it to the hobbyist. There's no interest mm-hmm. in a hobbyist buying a $20,000 animal. And I understand that. And that's totally fine. And, but there is a whole world outside of the hobbyist that maybe the hobbyist doesn't understand. I mean, the people I'm, 
interacting with every day or work with. This is all we do. This is how we eat. So that trade is entirely different than the hobby trade, which is what, I mean, ultimately I want this to be a hobby animal. I'd like in 15 years for these to be, you know, a thousand dollars. I mean, kind of, you know, like a bearded dragon, a bearded dragon can be anything from a $40 bearded dragon today. You could probably spend, I bet you could spend $10,000 on a bearded dragon. If you look hard enough, somebody would sell you a fancy new bearded dragon 40 years later that cost thousands. And, but again, those are going to very different homes. And, and I think once the community, this community in this example with your mastics kind of picks up a little speed and understanding on that's why this example is as expensive as it is. Or the same thing with Thomas. I, Thomas, I are an expensive animal. Your princeps are an expensive animal. All these things are because there are relatively low availability, relatively high initial expense and a lot of time and energy to get those animals on the table so the hobbyists can actually enjoy it. Right. That's, 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 and that's a lot greater thing in totality to have to think about when it's how you live, as opposed to somebody who just walks by and be able, like I can go by and I can look at a car dealership and go, well, this, this, this Chevy's 20 grand and this, you know, Ferrari's 200 grand. They're, this, they're both cars. And yeah. they, they both have very different end users, right? They're, I mean, arguably, this guy over here is in a totally different place of this guy over here. And, and, and I think part of that is because, well, if you want the Ferrari, you're probably going to race your car for a living or whatever you're going to do. You're going to just be a rich guy that's going to show people. But in the end, um, I just, I think the learning curve about costs and values in all of it is sometimes hard for people like us to articulate in a way that makes sense to the end hobbyists because at the end of the day you know uh they just want a pretty pet and that's that's what we're all trying to do that's what you're trying to do with your innates that's what you're trying to do with everything you have in your community you want to offer the casual person a beautiful animal they can enjoy but there's a lot there's a lot involved in getting yeah. those animals to the table both Absolutely. financially and time-wise yeah. you know well yeah, roy i think you'd, you'd probably agree too i mean you were talking about spalotti's I'm sure you've seen yeah. plenty of those, that whole group of animals, you know, they're $30 shoved in deli cups coming out of the bush and then, yeah. or, and then they just disappear entirely. Let's say some examples, or they all just die or they keep coming in and they just keep dying. And then when you take them home, you acclimate them, you take diligence to care for them properly for years of your life mm-hmm. and you produce them. People shouldn't be surprised if that's a thousand dollar hatchling now, because you literally yeah. have thousands of hours and thousands of dollars of your life to make that end result animal. So that animal is not the $30 animal anymore. They are different animals. And no, it's the same example, no. same example, you know, with, with exactly. these I mean, it's, patterns. Yeah. I mean, it's that, that project. I mean, this, the sulfurious is a good example of like, yeah. you know, it took, it took, I think it was five years of work to, yeah. before I got, before I had hatchlings, mm-hmm. you know, before I was able to take it from dealing with freshly, you know, imported wild caught females that were in really rough shape when I got sure. them, you know, it took, it took two years of dedicated work just to get them feeding with consistency, Yeah, you know, just to do that. Yeah. Then there was, <laughs> then there was, then there was getting them conditioned well enough you know, yeah. and just getting, getting them settled well enough, not to mention figuring out how to cycle them pro- properly and trigger the trigger, everything properly, all of that. Yeah. So yeah, it's a lot, there's a lot more that goes into it, you know, and, and it's funny too, because it's like, not even like the discrepancy is it's like my animals are, I, I asked a thousand bucks for the sulfurious oh, and, 
you can buy wild caught sulfurious. I mean, most of the time, wild caught sulfurious I see are, you know, on like morph market and fauna and stuff like that. They're around 500 bucks. So it's like, and I can tell you right now, it's a lot more enjoyable to just start with capture brand animal. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And those <laughs> it's are not just fun. Cool. Yeah. And there's just no wild, fun. They're so different animals. They're such a different animal. Yeah. They're so they are the same yeah. animal, but they are not the same animal at all at that point. Yeah. I know. Yeah. And I think, uh, I think that's just a time thing. I think it's a learning curve for the community in general and the hobby. You know, uh, yeah. I think, you know, Euromastics have historically not been animals people have pursued at all for scaling up to breed or keep because they've been somewhat disposable. That Like, you know, they've been an animal that yeah. lands in great volume, is bought on the cheap or bought, you know, for the casual hobbyist or, again, the beginner, the, the, the people that may not mm-hmm. be as informed as they should be. And there's a lot of uh, negative result because of it. I mean, it's really true, you know. And, and uh, I think in all of that, that in the end, captive producing these animals will be good in all contexts across the board and everyone will benefit. It just might take people an hour or two to understand why this animal is so much more than the initial imported animal. And yeah. if, you, if you have the skill set to go and grab imported stuff out of the wild or you have the funds to buy a, a fancy mutation when it lands out of the bush, go buy them. I mean, they, you do that yourself. Yeah, but it, totally. you know. But, but that's a pretty small club. I think we're in a, you know, you're talking about for the great vast majority of the world, owning a reptile is a simple joy, you know, akin to a goldfish or a dog. I mean, it's not a thing that they want to spend huge vested amounts of time in their lives having to, totally. you know, I mean, the, the, the casual 16 year old with a bearded dragon is not any of us in that regard. You right. know, just very different, very different end result users but yeah i think it'd be great i think in the end you know uh just in general having access to more captive bred animals is a is a windfall for everybody i mean the, the ball python is a perfect example that they used to export literally hundreds oh, yeah. of thousands hundreds of thousands of them out of the wild every year normals for you know eight dollars six dollars that would go into pet smart and pets petco that market has completely disappeared. There's absolutely no need for it now because we self-sustain that within our own captive. Oh, yeah. And they're nicer animals and they're healthier animals and they're better for everyone. We're not taking anything out of the wild anymore. We're not, we're not exploiting the local communities that are being taken advantage of in the process of that whole pursuit. Yeah. You know, go into the, go into your, go into the natural environment you live in, please exploit it. And then let me buy it on the other side of the world. That sucks. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's not totally. anybody's favor. And uh, yeah, I think in general, it's all going to be neat to see how much stuff gets captive bred in the future. Cause I think that may be the only way we keep any of it. I think, you know, mm-hmm. maybe, you know, depending upon how laws and legislation go, we may not have a lot of option left, but what's already here, you know, in the coming. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's something I think about a lot. I mean, especially with a lot of the stuff that I work with, you know, being more obscure stuff that's not super well established yet is like, I mean, first of all, part of the reason why I work primarily with species from the guy on a shield is because that's the last region in South America. That's really still exporting. Exporting. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so, but I also have the sense that, like, that's, I mean, what's the trend there? <laughs> you know, the right. trend is toward yeah. the country's <laughs> closing export, absolutely not reopening. Yeah. You know, absolutely. and so I feel like it's very likely that eventually that's, that's going to close. And, you know, and, and in some ways, like, I'm okay with that. You know, like, I, like, I, I like the idea of wild animals being able to stay wild, you know, <laughs> of course, as much as possible. I also like the idea of, you know, you know, dedicated 
herpetoculturalists having access to select wild-caught animals to, you know, inject new blood into their lions and, and, um, and sustain herpetoculture. I think that that should be, there should be a legal means by which people can do that, mm-hmm. you know, if they're qualified, but, um, anyway, yeah, it's just, it's definitely something I think about it because there's, only so many of these animals in the country, you know, and so I'm, and, and I can only do so much by myself too. It's like, it's like, I'm not going to establish this species by myself. It's like, I, I need other people to be invested in that species in herpetoculture, remaining in herpetoculture, yeah. you know? And so I really, I think about myself more as like an ambassador for these species than anything else, because I just personally will never be able to produce on the scale, you know, to single-handedly. Right. <laughs> established yeah. spilotes or polychris or anything it's just not going to happen for sure but if i can champion them and get other people interested that's great absolutely and if you're going to have to bred offspring facilitate that yeah. because they're cooler healthier happier animals for it it's all the better exactly. that's the way i feel about all these you know the, like work this lavender project it has i think a lot of long-term appeal uh not only from the fact that there's value in producing them today tomorrow and in the future but even the like heterozygous offspring that are totally normal appearing wild type, they're going to be beautiful captive bred babies that will be in greater abundance because people are producing, making lavenders. And those will be a byproduct of that whole process. And as that grows, yep. and grows, and grows, then there's less need to be pulling like the ball python as an example. There's less need to want it. If you can get a healthier, happier animal for the same or similar value than the one you could pull out of the wild and it's next door, go buy that. And that's what everyone will do. I think yeah. that's, and that's huge. I think that's huge. That's an interesting possibility in the future. You know, like Phil with the ornates. I mean, there's going to come a day where there won't be any ornates coming into the country anymore. And it's mm-hmm. finally come to a complete close. And when that happens, if you continue with the momentum you've got, you'll be in a position to where there could be hundreds of examples a year available for you to help people continue to enjoy them and have them as captive bred animals. And even if that costs twice the money, five times the money, it doesn't matter what the more it costs and where it makes it to where it's practical for you to continue to grow them. There'll be someone who wants to buy them and enjoy them, and that avenue will be available to them to pursue. It may cost more, but the reality is they're going to get a better. They're going to get. It's a better win for everybody in that respect. You know, the more they're captive bred. Oh yeah. It's just awesome to think about. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, and there's a few other things here too. Like, like I wanted to go back a little bit, not, not in the conversation, but just in, in something I wanted to touch on, you know, you mentioned Mm -hmm. um, the amount of time and effort and energy Mm -hmm. trial and error that goes into establishing any project, whether it's Mm -hmm. a lavender albino J-Rai or a a Spilotes, right? It's like, it's, this is very, very difficult work. And it's not something you can take for granted. Um, not just as the person doing it, because you get to a point where it becomes like, Oh, I've done this a lot. Like I'm kind of used sure. to see, you know what I mean? Like I've produced a lot of more Nata this year and it's kind of weird. Like I remember yeah. it was like hatching a couple of them was unreal. Yeah. You know? And, but like, regardless, your, your, your frame of view kind of zooms out all the time. It's mm-hmm. like zooming out, zooming out, zooming out, zooming out, because, you know, like, like if we were using like dog breeds or, you know, like the, the chickens that look like David Bowie or, sure. you know, like, or, or whatever, it's like, uh, you know, you probably pay a pretty penny for the very first ever golden retriever that is like the golden retriever. You know, it's, 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 like I mentioned your ass, I spent like my dog, I, she was three grand. Yeah, for sure. I'd pay 20 grand for her if she was the first one ever. I'd be like, right. fuck, you give me 
You know what I mean? I pay hundred. I take I mortgage at my house for that. Like, he's a great dog, you know. And it's like, but it's not because I'm looking to make a ton of money off of her. It's not because trying to like build some empire. It's because like I see value there. I see a nice animal. I see something that I want that I think is really amazing and something that I want to see go forward. And and it it's a recognition of the amount of time and energy it took to make that goddamn thing. Like it. Yeah. You know, and, and, and that's, that's a, per- and that's a perfect example because you are both in that state, in that sentence, you are both the end user that we were talking about that would be buying the first bearded dragon with the purchase of your lab yeah. retriever. And you are also someone who is commercially raising wildlife for a living. So you have, you have both ends of that perspective there. You have the, well, if this needed to be a, 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 a you know, a five figure buy-in, I would be down to do that because I need to do that for my work. But in the same breath, I also could see how if I needed a five-figure buy-in for this animal just because I loved it and enjoyed it and I never did anything with it other than sat and then had a life with it, that's also a possibility. I mean, again, if you have the means and the money to do that in the moment, and that's 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 kind of the hope, I think. If we can just bring greater value to the concept of reptiles as a whole, I think we will do really, really well. I think the idea – I hate the – I hate – I hate the fact that the word of disposable pet even is a concept in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the reality is it's, it's because there is, I mean, I, 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 at least in my opinion, I think a lot of that correlates directly to the easy access of a, of a low buy-in animal without knowledge or understanding of what they're doing. There seems to be, you kind of get people into a moment of a construct at a reptile show or community. They're buzzing around. They're having a good time. It's really exciting. You see things you've never seen before. You know, like I said, everything from the equivalent of what would be, you know, great pets to terrible pets and everything in between. And then there's there's this cool thing in a deli cup I can impulse buy and take home. And that mm-hmm. aspect of our trade, I think we could do with less of to a large extent. And I think the more Definitely. you can increase value in all of it, the less likely that happens. Because there's just no way to, you know, there's no other way to say it. The more money you have to spend, not just in a pet, but in anything, the longer you take to pause to make the decision to buy it, right? <laughs> you know, it's a, yeah. I mean, the 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 stakes are just greater. You right. Know, it's, it's higher. So your stakes, brain thinks so you about to consider it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's good. I think in the end, if we can do more of that as a trade, if we can, if we can reflect to the public the value that we see in them, not just mm-hmm. tangentially in their care and keeping for us, but in their actual dollar value, I think we're going to do better. Mm-hmm. I think we're just going to do better. You know, it may be a smaller club yeah. because of it, but I think it's just like, like, like you were asking, you know, so you were saying at the beginning of talking about Rich's shop being a good shop and how even today, good shops seem to struggle. Well, I think that is becoming less and less true. I think the good shops are doing really well. It's just proportionately to the shitty shops. There's still a very small portion of the whole. Yeah. And I think the yeah. more we can get better shops at higher quality that just demand more, more money, more care, more expectation, the more that'll benefit people keeping stuff and enjoying their animals for longer, which is what I would like to see everyone do. Anyways, I'm done off my soapbox down. <laughs> oh, I love it, man. I mean, I think that, and in a lot of ways, I feel like this is like what we're talking about too, is like, is like slowly progressing the culture, you know, mm-hmm. you know, of not only of herpetoculture, but, you know, more broadly speaking, it's like, I think that part of the the thing around reptiles and people, people not, um, not perceiving their value is just that, 
it, it's it's there's a cultural component too you know just like this kind of hierarchy of life you know that like reptiles are lower order life forms you know right. and the more and more that we you know we are, are are understanding reptiles because the more and more we're actually studying them all of that the more and more we realize that they're actually very sophisticated in ways that we could not perceive because we had these these cultural blinders on you know that were, that were narrowing our perspective and um so i feel like that's a part of it too and and also like i feel like the, the other aspect of like the cultural change is just like what you're saying is is within herpetoculture you know it's the mm-hmm. inside job so to speak which is yeah. like um placing a greater value on on one another's uh contributions essentially you know yeah. and like actually supporting breeders who are like you know doing it the way that we would like to see it done you know and like paying them what they're worth <laughs> to some degree you know yeah, yeah, i think that that's that's yeah. something that is hard for some people i think you know especially because we live in this this world where it's you know everyone wants a deal and everyone wants to haggle and sure and all that stuff but it's like art of the deal also baby. Something to be said oh. about <laughs> there's also something to be said about just like i respect this person's work and i'm just gonna pay their price yeah you know and like like you know, I have, I have friends who are craftsmen and it's like, um, I don't use their discount codes because right. I, because of the, I want to pay them what they're worth, you know? Yeah. And I know yeah. they're hardworking people and yeah. it took a long time to develop that skill set. And I, like, that's what I'm paying for. <laughs> and I agree with that. I, with that entirely. And I also think part of that too, becomes it doesn't just apply to the keeper. It's also about the animals. You know, when I bought the, when I brought the, sure. when I brought the defense were in the ones I bought were captive bred, in Europe, I knew they were captive bred. I saw photographs of the eggs hatching out. Yep. And they were $1,500 for unsexed 90-day-old animals. When when smuggled, Mexican example, yep. were crossing. The, I mean, there were defense at every show in California I went to, 10 deep in delicates. Oh, yeah. You know, broke tails because they're snapping the rocks to get in and get them. They all are yeah. wild, hydrated. They're $300. And, I, and people thought I was crazy to buy them for that money. Like, why would I go and actively spend tens of thousands of dollars when I could have five times that many for half the cost? And the bottom line is, yeah. I'm not bragging when I say this, but I will offer, I think I've probably produced more defensor than anyone in North America with that group that I had yeah. because I bought animals that were captive bred for someone else, were not smuggled and shoved under a bed for three mm-hmm. months until they could black market, bring them over. And I didn't participate in that community because I valued what that was going to be time-wise for me, what was going to be saved in that whole process, I guess, right? Like, yes, oh, maybe, totally. maybe I had the skill set to go and buy a 10 lot of defense or out of the bush at $300, maybe four of those a breed, but that might take five or six years. I had defense or hatching out in my incubator two years after I bought those hatchlings because they were perfect, healthy examples. And in retrospect, I'm so glad that was the option that I chose to make. But at the time, I can't lie. And there was a moment where my brain was like, well, does this make sense? And it does. Yeah. It's just you almost have to catch up to the reality that sometimes a deal just isn't. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I guess that's yeah, what I well said. No, no, yeah. totally, man. I mean, you know, um, I appreciate, you know, it's funny. I, I see so many similar. I was an artist by trade. Like a lot of people might know that yeah. already. Kind of how I how yeah. I how I learned how to be in the world is through art and stuff. And one of the things you'd see all the time was like people who would haggle with you, right? Which you'd never do if you went to like a restaurant. 
and you sat down and you ate the steak and you'd be like, you know, I'm not really sure this is worth what I, what I, what I was wanting to pay here initially coming in. You'd never go to a doctor and say, I, what? I ate the ribeye, but I kind yeah. of, I don't yeah. think it was worth what, what it was on right. the menu. So, <laughs> yeah, you'd never go, you'd never, you'd never go get a massage and be like, listen, hear me out. Let me do this one for free. And I'm going to tell everyone I know about your massage therapy. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, I don't myself, dude. Like I just, you know, like I, I, and, and, yeah. and similarities here because, you know, people right now, there are, there was a big shipment of Ornata that came in again recently and they're, they're like 200 bucks, you know? Yeah. And, and that's down from last year when they were $500, right. all the importers saw me, uh, selling legitimate captive bred, healthy baby mm-hmm. born eight euros for $500. And yeah. so they were like, ah, market. Right. And they went ahead and decided to swoop in and take some of that. Right? Um, but like the reality is not even, even remotely in competition with one another. Like I have a totally yeah. different mm-hmm. offering. I'm offering something entirely different altogether. There, there is no other person here in the country that can offer you fourth generation captive bred ornate Euromastics. I can't, there's not even a person who can do that. Right. Like, and I don't care how many ornates they've bought recently and, and they're flipping them. And they, when they say, Oh, I got, you know, Oh, I, I, these are captive bred from a local breeder. Bullshit. Local breeder. (laughs) My ass. No local breeder. That's the story. Everybody gives all the time. Oh, we got them from a Uh local breeder who prefers to remain anonymous. Uh Uh All right. Uh highly convenient, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, it, it, it's not the same thing. And so when people ask me, it's like, how much are your, your sexed male ornates? And I tell you $800. It's like, yeah, damn right. They're $800 and they're going to stay there. Like mm-hmm. I'm not talking the price. Mm-hmm. They're worth every, they're worth every penny. You know, I'm sure you saw that all the time, Phil, with your mastics too. these same examples, uh, you know, Thomasite, Princeps, Yemenensis, all that stuff comes in smuggled and it comes in in terrible condition, in terrible shape. It's often sold at a lower, I mean, sadly, sometimes it's sold at the same premium as legitimate captive bred animals. And people end up getting animals that have been smuggled legitimately around the world. And the days and months, weeks and months that it takes for them to be black marketed and laundered to land. There's in such poor condition by the time they even arrive. And, and never mind the idea of what they might have been cross-contaminated with and the 10 or 12 hands that have had that manhandled them to get them into yeah. the country. Anything else it, it's and 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 those examples are they happen time and time again on the idea that we as a community of reptile keepers want a deal. And that just yeah. sucks. I mean, really, truly, the more the more we can learn to stop that behavior and value not only the keeper who busts their ass and puts in thousands of hours and dollars and time and effort, but also the animal. Again, it goes back to it just it's just going to benefit. I just think right, the- right. and ultimately, yeah, because ultimately, like, what's paying the price? You know, like something's making up the wildlife is too. Yeah, I mean, wildlife. Yeah, right? I mean. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's us, but it's, it's the animals, you know, the it's like they're too. paying the price too. Yeah. yeah. And so it's like, I mean, there's always a cost to the convenience. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, there's a, there's a, there's a cost for free two day shipping. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's substantial. <laughs> and even the, and, but you know, sometimes that cost can be a joy. I mean, if you can take, yeah, if you can take any of the examples we just talked about that, that were, 
awesome that are just awesome animals and you can take one home and it costs five times what it did to buy the smuggled one but you can take it home with the peace of mind that you know that you're buying an animal that somebody's put effort and love into and they enjoy and care about and yeah. they want you to have the same thing happen that's awesome that is just bitching sure. it's great yeah, yeah. I mean, there's nothing yeah. else to be said i mean i don't know how else to say it. like Yes, you know, these things are going to cost more. All of this stuff, whether it be a different color or just a new species to the trade or whatever it might be. But at the end of the day, if you can value the idea of valuing it at all, then it's just cool. You can go home with the peace of mind of knowing that you benefit a community of people that love the same thing you do. And you're not dicking over the animals, the trade or the uh, the market that's illicit because of the idea of you needing a deal. I mean, that's that would just yeah. be yeah. Know, Right. Well, I mean, even even something as simple as like, and this is like, this isn't cut and dry. I don't always adhere to this, but like the idea that when people will come to me and say, Hey, if I buy four, if I buy five, will you give me a discount? No. Why? Why should I? Why? why? (laughs) Sure. Don't get me wrong. I, I get it. I totally understand that a lot of us will shave off prices on individual animals because we're only sending one box to one person. I get it. Mm-hmm. I get it. But to me, that says two things. Number one, uh, you're probably going to resell, right? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. and if you, and if, because if you're buying 10 animals to breed for yourself, you're paying full price for every single one of them. And you should, sure. because mm-hmm. you're paying for a, a way to get into a project that you want to be a part of. Like, why would I give you a discount for that? If I had 10 separate people, why would I just start discounting them as they get closer to 10? It's, yeah. it's crazy. It's all the same animal still. Yeah still took me X number of hours to get there, produce it, feed it, take care of it. Why would I cut it in, in, in price? Right. And it's the same thing that I did with you. We you know, like we were talking about with the lavender albinos when you were here, you know, and I made it clear to you. I'm like, you know, Phil, I've known you over half a decade now. We're certainly friends. I'm yeah, oh yeah. You're happier part of my life. But if you want to buy this animal, you have to pay what everybody else paid because if oh, yeah. I short you, if I give you a deal, I'm shorting everybody else behind you that's already paid to buy the animal and the project. And I believe yeah. in the idea that everybody wants to be successful and make money on that. And if they're all willing to give me that money in order to continue the idea that it's going to be a project that other people are going to enjoy and want to make money from, I can't in good faith short them just because we're friends or, or for any other reason at all, or because you want to buy 10 of them. Even it doesn't, it wouldn't matter because the reality is anywhere along that line that I break that chain of faith, I guess it is good faith mm-hmm. that yeah. these animals have this value. We all believe in it and we're all going to buy it together and move along. Uh, yeah. You end up just screwing everybody behind. Well, and, and, and we were just talking about like, I, I, you know, we were just talking about the creative, the creative trades. I pay people for their work. Sure. Yeah. Pay people for their work, man. Like I'm, I don't, even my friend, like Roy, you said, I don't use my friend's discount codes. Yeah. Fuck yeah. no. I yeah. pay my friends. Like I've, I've had yeah. friends take advantage of me for 11 years telling me it's because we're friends. Right. <laughs> yeah. if, if you are my friend, you want me to thrive and be able to pay my bills and like feed my family and yeah. my, fulfill my goals and like live a good, good fulfilling life. Like I pay, I pay my goddamn friends for their work period. Yeah. 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 Like, yeah, I mean, just in that principle alone is like, yeah. you know, like, I don't care. I'll pay. It's fine. <laughs> you know, and he's, he's worth it, by the way. He's just chilling. Oh, thing. He's a little monster. His name is Delagarth. You know, I named him after that stupid game that nerds play. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. Which, uh, this is a total tangent, but yeah. So, okay. Uh, I love this. This is all such interesting 
interesting, interesting stuff to talk about. And this is like exactly why I wanted to have you have you on because I I love you. You have a way of communicating that is concise and straightforward and not just direct, but also like accommodating of alter accommodating of alternative perspectives, you know, <laughs> like you're very good at saying like, look, I totally get why you might think X, but here's why, you know, like, or whatever. Um, but with that said, yeah, of course. Of course. Um, with that said, we're coming up on about 90 minutes. Okay. And what I want to do is I, I still have more things I want to ask you about, but I, but I, I would, I think maybe now is the time to shift gears to just a couple of other questions. Um, and then we'll get to a closer event here in, in no short order. Um, uh, but one of the things I wanted to ask you, um, is like, if you, if you had to, if you could take like a zoomed out perspective on all of herpetoculture, right. Every part of it, whether it's the parts that's happening under the zoological umbrella, if the the parts that happening under a pet store umbrella, you know, like whatever the, the trafficking part of it, what all of it, right. If you could say like, what do you think are the most, the most positive aspects and then, you know, the most negative aspects and like how you'd like to see if you could zoom forward 500 years, what, how, how do you think, what would, what would be the nicest thing for you to see in 500 years, like out of herpetoculture? Like what would be, you know, like a, like a, an all too perfect world if you had any say in it at all. Sure. Uh, that's a fun, 500 years is a long way to go. Let me think. We might see that, you know, yeah, like I'm not, yeah. not that old, you know, like, I think just in general, if I, if the, if the hobby in a perfect world, I'd like to see the hobby benefit from itself more. I would like to see the hobby value itself more. Like we were just talking about with the idea of both the keeper and the animals that we keep. I think that if the, if that can come to pass to a degree that I, I can't tangibly identify or pinpoint when that moment would be, but if we could get to a place to where that was a given, that was just the standard that we all as a community seem to abide by, I think it would just be a much nicer place for everyone, both the animals and the keepers. And that would be really fulfilling to me because I don't like the disappointment of people when they don't get a nice, fun, enjoyable thing and result from keeping reptiles because I do every day, every day of my life. I live, I feed my family entirely on the fact that I love what I do. And it's a joy to keep animals and it's a joy to work with them. But that didn't come without the reality of knowing that a lot of people don't get that opportunity because of some of the pitfalls of buying an animal or buying new into the hobby or becoming a part of the hobby in the community. And some of that responsibility of how those moments happen that people have those pitfalls is owed to both the current keepers and the community at large. It would just be cool if we could get to where everybody seems to value things a little more. And I don't mean value just as a cash or a tangible point. I just mean intrinsically. I think if that were to come to pass, if we would, if we could lose the yard sale mentality sometimes of people working or interacting with animals, I think we would be just in a much better place. And that would make me really happy just because I'm so rewarded. I'm so lucky with my life and the way it's played out with what I get to do every day. It would be cool. While I appreciate that everyone's going to want to raise animals for a living, it would be cool if the end joy that I get just from being around them every day or have it, handling or interacting with them is passed on to just about everyone that ever has the chance to, to buy our own one. That would be cool. Right. Right. Fair enough. I like that. Yeah. The yard yeah. mentality. I like I like that way of putting it. I think that's pretty spot on. Because it does feel that way, right? I mean, when we devalue it, it kind of, yeah, you devalue the thing you're selling, you devalue the buyer, you devalue the seller, the whole transaction, the whole process of that interaction has a negative or a less than pleasant feeling. I would like it to be. Yeah. Yeah. 
just yeah, more, yeah, yeah. more, con- more conscientious for everyone, more concise, more thoughtful, more thoughtful, I guess. I like that. Man. Yeah. 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 Well, there you go. So I have a, I have a, this is an odd one, but it's something I want to, is this something new we're kind of playing with here? I want to see how this, uh, how this works out. Um, I, I have chat GPT on my phone right now. And I want, I want to, I want to, I want to have you, what question, what herpetological related question do you want me to ask chat GPT right now? Oh yeah. Yeah. Like it could be anything. How do you care for Python? Right? Like, yeah, literally anything. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, it's an AI. Is that basically what yeah. it is? Yeah. Uh, a large language model. Large that's language. fun. Let me think. Yeah, 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 yeah. Super fun. Um, ask it which uh, which day could be best for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! I'm so excited to hear what this generates. Okay, let's see what it. Oh. I don't encourage or provide information on consuming snakes or any other wild. <laughs> <laughs> that's great it's, it's essential very diplomatic it's essential to respect and protect our natural ecosystems and wildlife if you Fantastic. have questions, if you have questions about food choices or recipes feel free to ask and i'd be happy to help with that that's great that's, that's a good that's silly. a good question that's a silly <laughs> question I, i'm kind of frightened by how good the answer was too yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Wow, that's uh, really something. <laughs> that's fucking hilarious. That was a good one. That was really, really good. So okay. this is something I want to I want to do because um I thought it would be really fun to to just add this in and see what happens, like what different guests ask Chat GPT and what kind of weird answer we may or may not get. I'm not lying to you. I've learned stuff. I've learned a lot using chat GPT and asking it lots of questions. It's fucking cool. It's really really cool. I learned, I, I asked it about butterfly agamas and I found out like a couple of things, like half of all the butterfly agama species are partho. Huh? Really? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. They all like half of them. They just, they're totally can be partho or, or uh, like they're all, and then some uh, some of them, some of them are not course but like I, I didn't know that i i've i've been scouring pdfs you know and wow. i'm like so i'm like what and so then i started typing that into some of my searches and finding other weird stuff it's like it's not even more it's not even half it's like it's like there's 12 species or 10 species and like fully six of them are wow. just totally um like either asexual asexual devoid of males or something like that it's wild sure. totally um wow. but yeah and i mean who knows how how correct it is, right? I mean, they're well. It's, yeah, I mean, I was skeptical. Probably some some real variety there, in, in in exactly how it how it all comes down. But I've also asked asked it other things, like how do you care for your amastics, and you know all this other weird stuff. But it gives some pretty goddamn good answers. <laughs> That's funny. So I thought I thought it'd be fun, you know, because I, I I have a feeling it's a lot like our closer question. It'll probably just yield some really weird, interesting stuff, and and. Sure. Uh, you know, I've tried other things. Like I saw, I saw that uh, this was shared, I think by Morph Market, but there was some other, I think other people, I don't know who was like sort of initially responsible. Someone had put into like mid journey, the art generating AI, Yeah. like what would, what, what ought, what should, or how could the pet, the, like the, the reptile stores of the future look. Oh yeah. These totally weird, like 
basically zoos really zoos. they yeah. look yeah. like really cool skylights and 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 super bright lighting and 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 big features inside the store and all that like it was really badass like i'm not gonna lie it was <laughs> super interesting and i was like okay that's kind of light um yeah so i really wanted to do that uh but before we we get into some of like the the closing stuff roy i want to i want to give you a little bit of room to hop in here if there's anything else you wanted to you know anything other, uh, that you wanted to throw on top here or anything you wanted to add in well i'm i mean i'm curious about like what's next for you josh like, like just like what's what's like on your horizon as far as goals you know for your project for um herpetoculture in general what's where you got with that that's awesome. Uh, yeah, I, I'm trying to diversify my collection a little bit, just uh, but in s- larger scale. So mm. I raised homicide previously. I s- moved my homicide group to fill when the lavender project came about because of space. I was out. It's a lot of space to raise it this many. Uh, but then I moved to a new property with a larger building. So then I had the luxury to want to pursue Thomasai again. So in the last year or so, I think I've bought, oh, I don't know, 25 Thomasai to raise nice. and try to start setting aside. They're a really good animal that I can feel comfortable selling in, in a larger scale setting. If that should, should that come to pass, because they're a small size, they're a herbivore, mm-hmm. they're a real easy keeper. They're super forgiving on, you know, if you got to leave town for four or five days, that's I actually the Euromastics as a whole have been a really neat, eye-opening thing in yeah. the uh, you know like a bearded dragon is a great pet too but a bearded dragon needs crickets and it needs crickets weekly for the rest of its life which could be a very long time you know a beard, uh, your mm-hmm. masks are really advantageous in that they have the opportunity to you can throw some veg in and if you need to leave town for five days as that veg dries that animal won't even know you're gone it'll just keep snacking away on it it won't be a problem and and i just i've been trying to learn and look more at like long term when i and if animals are produced in scale if they still offer a great pet opportunity and these thomas i really do that so i'm raising more of those uh and then the lavender albino project i'm going to try to keep pushing production on that for the next you know 10 or 15 years so i'm going to scale that up real big as the years go by um and then i also uh i still enjoy my ball pythons i still have a collection of those i still work with those and i've raised some tortoises here on the property i've got uh burmese stars that have been real nice and productive the last 10 or 15 years uh herman's tortoises Uh, i have some aldabra tortoises and that's gonna for me i'm i am kind of a mono culture keeper i want to keep three or four things really, really well and in really large volume. So that way I can offer them to the community at large and they can enjoy them. That's all I want out of this. Because from, from my work perspective, from now for fun, I mean, I wouldn't mind, wouldn't mind grabbing some MMT bullets again, just because I haven't had any in a decade. Nice. Or so. Yeah, yeah I, would, I, I would like to keep them again uh, just for myself. And yeah, that's probably, as I get older, it's funny. I, there are less things that I think I need to keep. And I just enjoy mm-hmm. the idea, you know, the cat of having really good success consistently with the two or three things I'm chasing. Just so yeah, so that's, that's cool. it. Be lots, hopefully lots of Thomasai, hopefully a, a nice group of lavenders. This lavender thing with all these different colors and patterns between the males and females, the yellows, the oranges, and the red thing. I'm really looking forward to just seeing that play out more over the next several years. Cause to go from having two examples to having 20 or 30, because there's just so much variability, that'll be neat in and of itself. I'm really excited about just seeing how that plays out as they grow and color up and stuff. Cause it's pretty, pretty unique, pretty unique stuff. You're going to be in, uh, 
San Diego in January? Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Pomona? Or or Pomona. Pomona, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. We'll both do it. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go too, and I'll be bringing nothing but these ladders. So I'm just going to put them on the table for the first time. Awesome. I'll have adults, and I'll have subadults, and so everybody that would like to see them and comment on how much they love or hate them are more than welcome to come to my table and tell me all about it, <laughs> whatever they might like. Because I'm going to be there, dude. I'm going to be there, like on the yeah. some back corner, be like, "Fuck, loser." <laughs> For sure. What a bunch of, a bunch of ugly lizards. What a bunch of ugly lizards. Yep. So, so that, um, everybody, don't forget to bring your uh, torches and pitchforks to promote. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Or also your or also your visas and MasterCards. That's fine too. <laughs> oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Whichever you prefer. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. That's so funny. That is, that is unbelievably funny. Okay. Well, that's uh, uh, anything else, Roy, or do you want me to hit him with the closer? No, I think that's that's great. I mean, I feel like we could keep going, but I should probably start moving to close here too. Yeah, so I, I got to I got to get him to my academy here shortly, and we've already oh. taken uh, almost two hours. Almost here. two hours. Oh. Yeah, I know. It just flies by, right? It just flies by. Yeah. So, you can bill us later. Absolutely. Absolutely. Come <laughs> on <Ramona> a dinner. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, so we. The, 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 the question we ask everyone as a closing question, uh, and it can be taken as vaguely or as specifically as you as you choose. Um, the question is, why herpetoculture? And that can be like, why do we do this? What's the point? What's the value? Why do you do it? What the hell is this crap? So why herpetoculture? Ah, why herpetoculture? Because it's better than a real job? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, pretty Love much. It. Period. I think I'm just, <laughs> I think that's it. I enjoy it far more. I don't want to be an adult. <laughs> I still find myself going back to Phil Tremper's answer, which was, it's a disease. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great, that's oh, great man. too. So funny. Yeah. Have, I feel like every single person we've asked this question has had a pretty cool answer. So <laughs> oh, yeah. I appreciate because it's better than a real job. Yeah, that's that's a good one. Yeah, I appreciate that a lot. Wow, yeah, that's that's a great answer, Josh. So, uh, real quick, before we stop the recording, can you tell us um, where can people find and pay attention to what you do on the interwebs? Uh, My biggest pursuit would probably be, or biggest avenue for people to find stuff would be on Facebook. It's at Marky Reptiles. Um, That's the company page. Uh, I'm also on Morph Market. I've got animals available for sale there. And they can just message me directly at either one of those two, or they can call me. The phone number is available too. If anybody uses the phone anymore, you can text me if you'd like. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> Whatever is most convenient for people. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. That's cool. great. Well, cool. uh, we'll have social links to all that stuff too. Awesome. Yeah. Right on. Thank cool. you so much for taking the time. You bet, man. Thanks for having me, guys. Of course. Of course. Yeah, my pleasure. All right, I'll hit the button. Roy's gonna hit the button. Hit the button. Yeah, yeah, that's where 